Welcome to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is visual artist Marjorie Morgan. Marjorie has been a creative soul all her life, engaging deeply with both performance and visual art forms. After receiving a BA in dance from Oberlin College, she spent over 25 years dancing professionally, both nationally and internationally and creating dances and performance art to be performed by herself and others. Her original performance works were listed as Best of Boston by the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, and Bay Windows 10 times between 1996 and 2009. In 2011, a serious injury severely impacted her ability to dance, causing her to shift her focus to the visual arts, where she has worked primarily as a painter and printmaker. Among other laurels, she's the recipient of a Lewis Sudler Award and a Tan Foundation Award for outstanding achievement in the arts. Marjorie was a member of the experimental art group Mobius in Boston and is currently a member of Oxbow Gallery and ZMA's Printmaking, where she is on the faculty. For the past few years, she has been captivated by the practice of making her own inks and pigments and using them in drawing, painting, and printmaking. She was raised in Vermont and currently makes her home in Western Massachusetts. So Marjorie, welcome to Off Leash Arts. Thank you. It's great to see you, Tanya. It's great to see you too. So for our listeners, Marjorie and I met at Oberlin College in dance class and we became really good friends and then sort of drifted apart over the many years living in different parts of the country. But I managed to keep track of her a bit via social media and catch glimpses in recent years of her incredibly varied and exciting journey as a visual artist, including buying one of her paintings, which now hangs in my home. So I wanted to start by asking you to read an excerpt from an artist statement that you recently wrote. Would you be willing to read that for us? Absolutely. In my artistic journey, one path leads to the next sometimes changing direction or media radically, but always directing me towards a greater understanding of myself and this beautiful and complex world. Most of my journey has been informed by detailed dreams, which found their way into my work via lyrics, stories, characters, and painted and printed landscapes. I'm grateful for every twist and turn, and I welcome whatever happens next. I love that. Thank you. What I love about that is it has a sense of surrender in it. Like you're not claiming control of the journey, but letting the process unfold. So there's this sense of being a willing participant in the adventure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I think I realized more recently. So this artist statement is a pretty recent statement from a September exhibit of artwork. And I really was taking time to look back at all of my years as an artist, as a dancer, as a choreographer, as a musician, as an actor, as a painter, as a printmaker. And I just realized that as much as I thought I was controlling this journey, I have not been controlling this journey. It has just been unfolding along the way. I feel grateful that I step into the journey, but it was fascinating to step back and look. And that's kind of what brought this artist statement about. My artist statements in the past have been a little more about like, well, what I'm really interested in right now. This one is definitely the big view. That was the question I was going to ask. Did you always feel that? But no, it's something that looking back gave you that perspective. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, a number of things have led to that, you know, age, of course, causes you to 
kind of step back from time to time. But also I think because I've jumped media so many times for a while, I was defined as a dancer and then I was defined as a performance artist. And then I was defined as musician and, you know, on and on and on. And then when people are trying to pin me down now, maybe even myself trying to pin myself down as a visual artist, I really had to say, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen next. I can't say I'm just a visual artist. That doesn't allow me room to grow. So I was just like, wow, this journey is way bigger than I have really even acknowledged before. So it's been fun to step back and take a bigger view. It's very humbling. That's something I feel like is an important lesson for both art and life, letting go of this illusion that we're in control. Absolutely. Absolutely. And art is also, I mean, you know, being an artist and probably a lot of the listeners being artists too, that that is part of the art process is relinquishing control and stepping, ideally stepping into the flow and letting your muses or your materials or whatever really kind of speak to you. When I'm really making artwork that I'm excited about, I feel like I am just I'm actually doing the mechanical work, but I'm not really doing the creative work. It's happening in a bigger way. I'm just trying to keep up. Are there particular conditions that you set up in a regular daily way in terms of time and space that contribute to the ability to step into that flow? Yeah, I do. First of all, I always get out in nature in the morning. I can't just jump into my studio and start working. I really need to go out and have a walk and be in the air and, you know, be outdoors. So that's a big part of my ritual, getting outside first. And then my studio now is a pretty sacred space to me. So the conditions of my studio, how my studio is set up feels very important. Controlling the images that I look at on the walls, controlling the food that comes into my space, really making sure that there's a sense of calm in my studio. And then in that calm, I can create a storm. I can really pull things out and make a mess and just go wherever I need to go. But if I step in and it's already a storm, I get overwhelmed. And do you need a window of a certain amount of time? My first instinct was to say yes, but you know, ideally I have a chunk of like two to four hours. That's like ideal for me, a big chunk of time. That being said, my studio is in my home and I really prefer it that way because I will think of something and I'll run to the studio and do a little something. Also in my life, I have the opportunity to be really spontaneous and come into the studio and even just like work for two minutes. I'm thinking of a painting or I'm thinking of something I want to write down and I just run in here and do it and then go back out and like take the food off the stove or whatever else is going on. So it's both. It's like both having these big chunks and these little, having a home studio offers me the opportunity to be really spontaneous. I wondered about that because in one of the interviews with you, I was reading, it seemed like you were sharing a studio with your wife. And I was like, wow, was that I used to. This is the first studio that I've had that's really my own space. And I so prefer that. My wife, Whitney, is a visual artist and she's wonderful and she's very good at sharing space. I am not as good at sharing space because of setting up the space the way I need to. So it got to be really hard for me to share space, mostly because I'm really visually sensitive and there was so much visual information. It was overwhelming me. So yeah, I don't share a space anymore. And now that I haven't shared a space, I can't imagine going back. You know, a room of one's own, it is really precious to me. I feel very fortunate 
to have this space. I feel that too. I mean, sometimes I even have to leave my house entirely and go away for three or four days just to focus on something. Oh yeah, absolutely. Me too. And actually the printmaking studio that I belong to is called ZMA's Printmaking. It's a collective studio. There's a director, but it's a working space. And for members there, they have an opportunity of signing out and paying for very, it's like $25 a day. It's so inexpensive, a space that is your own printmaking studio. So it has a huge press and working tables. And every year in December, when it's more quiet, I treat myself to a few days in that space. Because with printmaking, I'm almost always in a shared space because printmaking presses are so expensive. And that's oftentimes a collective process. So. I treat myself once a year to solo printmaking space too. And that is really, that's pretty exciting. Mm. Yeah. And it's a retreat. That's the other thing is kind of what you were talking about is really a retreat. Yeah. Having that expanding time where you don't have it bookended even two or four hours. Absolutely. And even I prepare a lot of my food ahead of time or I make my food really easy. So I stay down there by the studio. So I have no other distractions no bills, no emails, not even meal preparation. So I can really just let my artist self unfold over a series of days. That's a real treat. That's amazing. Yeah. So backing up a little, did you grow up with a lot of exposure to arts? Because you've had this really varied creative career. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I mean, I grew up in Southern Vermont in an area that didn't have a lot of arts education and didn't have a lot of arts activity regularly through the year. In the summertime, though, there were a lot of music festivals and theater festivals and sculpture festivals. And my parents loved the arts. So they would take us out to a lot of these things. I I grew up going to see a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of different and, you know, and new works, listening to a lot of live classical music. And then when we would go to cities from time to time, My parents took us to museums and I loved them, which was kind of weird. Like as a child, I loved things that children are not supposed to really love, like going to museums and eating olives and like strange, strange (laughs) kind of things. But I I really enjoyed that. And I, I did a little bit of art on my own, but like I said, there wasn't much in the schools that I grew up with. Oberlin College was really my opportunity to go into art and actually start making art, which was really exciting. Mm, Yeah. I remember you had been an athlete, right? And then you switched to dance in college. Yeah. I was an athlete. Sports for me were a way to be physically engaged and also to quite honestly, like have space out of the home, which I desperately needed. And that's just what you did in my town. That was the option to going home is you would play sports. So I went to college and I thought I tried out for the field hockey team. I got onto the varsity squad and I went to the first practice and I was like, oh, I hate running. I hate this. (laughs) I'm miserable. So I quit. And then I was, I'd never, since I was younger, I hadn't had life without sports. So I was like, well, I'll join the diving team. I just joined the diving team, never done that at all. And the coach was thrilled because we didn't have a female diver. So all I had to do was literally jump in the pool at a meet and we would get points. I didn't have to be good at all. And I was okay, but you know, and then I fell in love with dance. I started taking dance classes. As you know, I think we were in the same modern dance class and I just fell in love with it. And I had to make a choice that year. I remember talking to 
the head of the dance department and also my diving coach. And they both said, both of these, if you want to do them, are going to take more of a time commitment and you have to choose. So I chose dance for two reasons. One, it just brought me so much joy and it was joy without the anxiety of, I don't know, I had anxiety around sports, competitive issues, I would say. But then also my grandfather kept sending me articles about divers who had accidents oh, God. <laughs> and, and who were like hurting themselves and ending up with brain damage. And then I also did, I was performing a dive, executing a dive, doing, you know, simple back layout on the three meter board. And I hit my head mm. and that was it. And I was like, okay, I think I need to choose dance. And that was it. There was no turning back. And then you were in the professional dance world for 25 years. Yeah. And then can you talk about what happened that brought on the transition? Yeah, I was performing with a dear friend in Santa Fe. It was a performance that was like voice and movement. And I was doing a section that was more improvised. And I felt something happen in my hip. It was so brutal. I knew it. I felt it. I heard it. I heard tearing. And my body went into panic mode. So I'm sure, you know, adrenaline rushed in and I finished the performance, but I knew something really, really bad had happened. And I even right after the performance, I told my friends something really, really bad has happened. I'm really injured, but I was walking just, I think out of sheer shock. And we went out afterwards, we had a bite to eat and I went back to where I was staying and I, I didn't sleep a wink. My body was in tremendous pain. And I couldn't walk the next day. I had to crawl to communicate with people to tell them I really needed help. And because I was away from home, we decided to just like get me home and then see doctors. So we got me some crutches to hobble around on. I came off the plane in a wheelchair. And then it was about a two and a half year journey of getting diagnosed, dealing with chronic pain. It was pretty bad. And also my whole, like my professional career, not just as a performer, but also my income. So I was a teacher teaching at the Boston Conservatory. And I had to call my boss right away and say, you know, I've had this accident. And I remember him saying, is this a career ending injury? And I, I just like, I didn't know what to say. So I said, no, no, of course not. But in my heart, I think I knew it was, it was that bad. And I still can't dance, you know, I'm more limited physically. And I knew what it was too. And no one believed me. What happened, the major injury was I tore my IT band, which is a very strong, long connective tissue. Basically all the muscles of your thigh and your butt attach into this thing. And it's usually only like football players who injure this thing. So no one believed me. They thought, no, no, there's no way you would do that dancing. There's no way. That's what it was. Wow. And there's no way to repair it. There's no way to repair it. I talked to some surgeons and the main surgeon I talked to who I trusted the most basically said, we can try surgery for this, but because of your age, I was 45 at the time, maybe 43 because of your age. And because you are hypermobile, it's true for a lot of dancers, very, very flexible. All of my joints have a very huge range of motion. I said, because of those two things, our surgery could fail. And you could end up worse than you are right now. And the rate of failure on this surgery with someone with your conditions is 85%, 85% chance of failure. And I was in so much pain and so limited already. I said, no, there's no way I'm going to take that risk. Wow. Yeah. So what was that emotional journey like then to transition? It must've taken some time before you took time. Yeah. It was devastating. 
dance was my, my star. It was my North star. It's kind of how I oriented myself. My whole identity was wrapped up into it. My community was wrapped up into it. And the dance community, for the most part, at least the one I was part of, is kind of terrified of injury and terrified of limitations. So I, I didn't get a whole lot of support, I have to say, from my community. I even had people say like, wow, you're my worst nightmare, quote unquote. So I just really hold up for a while. I had to spend days just lying on my back days and days and months and months. And I started the thing that saved me was painting. I started painting and I'd learned how to paint a couple of years before I fell in love with it. I always seem to fall in love with things. I fell in love with it, was putting more and more time into it before my injury. And my dancer friends thought it was like a cute hobby, but they didn't take it seriously. I did, but they, nobody really, cause you know, dancers who paint, like what's that? But the painting is what really helped me. And interestingly enough, when I started painting, most of what I started painting were dancers to start with. Mm. I remember painting a portrait of Pina Bausch. And so I painted figures and movement. And my transition into painting was really a lot with figurative painting, painting the body. And that seemed to heal my need to be connected in that way. And also as a choreographer, I was used to looking at bodies and looking at the body as a compositional element. I just moved that into painting. Painting really, I would say it kept me sane and gave me some purpose and a huge creative outlet, obviously. Can you tell us the story of how you started painting? So as mentioned before, my wife is an artist and she had gone to a program in France for art teachers and she loved it. And then the next summer she got hired as a cook at the same places in this beautiful area in rural France. And then she and her friends schemed to get me to come as a cook. So, you know, we would get paid to come to this place in France and cook. And then there are people all around you making art. And so one year we went early and looked at the teens work. So there's a teen program and an art teacher program. And the teens work was so beautiful. And I watched them give their presentations. Many of them had not done a lot of artwork before. And they were so brave and so beautiful. I got inspired and I said, I'm going to try this. I want to try to paint just for fun. So I started, when the art teacher program happened, I started shadowing this painting class that was a plein air painting class. And I would follow along, had my little materials. And I really was careful to not be in the front or take up space because I was just the cook. And so we started painting. We picked a spot along this road to paint a plein air piece, a piece that basically just of what you see. And I started working on it and I would work on it when I had time between my lunch and dinner chores. And every day I would go out there and day after day, I would watch these art teachers just quit. They'd give up. They'd be like, oh, I'm done or I've had enough. I want to go into something else. And so after maybe about five days, I was the only one left there. I would go out and set up my easel and I'd do my things. And I just was working on it passionately, passionately. And one day an art teacher in the program was coming down the road and looking at me working at the painting. And she said, wow, you have quite the audience for your work. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, turn around. And I looked around and there was this whole herd of goats watching me paint. And I don't know how long they had been there, but for hours and hours. And so, you know, I dutifully worked on this painting until it felt like it was finished. And that was it. That was really the only formal art class I had. And I even sold that painting. I sold the first painting I ever made 
And it was a beautiful experience. Also, it's interesting now because I just realized this. Now I work with natural materials and it's interesting that my first painting was outdoors and was was about connecting with nature and really looking at nature. And that's what plein air means, right? Painting outside? Exactly. Painting in nature. I loved that. I was like, oh, I'm going to come home and I'm going to do that. Well, doing plein air work in New England versus France is really different. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a reason why there's so many painters who painted in France. It's a climate and a light source that are very easy to work with. And it's very beautiful, but boy, New England is way too temperamental. I know people who do it, but it is not easy in New England. The weather changes very quickly. The light changes very quickly. It's not as much fun. (laughs) Every once in a while I do it again, but yeah, it's absolutely best done in France, in my opinion, Uh or places like that. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's why so many of the famous French, like the Impressionists. Absolutely. They were the ones to really start to take artwork out of the studio and into the world. When we think about, you know, like Monet and Cezanne and Van Gogh. And the reason that happened is that tubes had just been invented. So they were able to take paint, which really was mixed on a table for each painting, they could then prepare their paints, put them in a tube and take them out into the world. That was a huge thing that allowed artists to go outdoors was that shift in materials. That's really cool. I never knew that. Yeah. The painting of yours that I bought, which I love, is from a series that you came to call Amalfi Coast. And in one of the interviews I was reading, you talked about how that whole series started from a gesture with a palette knife. Yeah. How did that happen? It actually, to me, very significantly happened. I went through breast cancer and it happened as I was just starting to get back on my feet after healing from breast cancer surgery. And so I just didn't have a lot of I was just grateful to be back in the studio, grateful to be alive and was just playing around, was just playing around with some oil paints. And I was working with palette knives and really wanted to make something abstract. I'd been doing figurative work and I was like, let's work abstractly. So I was messing around and I started making these shapes and it looked like a landscape very quickly and very specifically. And the landscape had two land masses. It was a sea landscape. So there's a horizon line and water and two land masses, one on the right and one on the left. And I was like, what is this? What? So I was like, okay, cool. You know, and I showed Whitney and some other people and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. I was like, yeah, I really don't know where that came from. So the next painting, I start working. And again, I'm like, I'm going to work abstractly. And these two land masses showed up again. They just demanded that they be in the painting. So I was like, okay. I guess I'll just paint these land masses. And on and on and on this went, painting after painting. It just didn't feel right unless it was this same scene. And this went on for months. Maybe I started these in January. And then by September, I had maybe about 30 of these paintings. I just kept painting and painting. And I loved, I stopped resisting and started being really into it. And the image was getting more and more specific. It always had a lot of weather. So the weather, the sky was different. The sense of the ocean or the sea was different, but the same basic thing every time. And the one you have in particular, Tanya, is this very like intense stormy moment. 
That it's looks really, like a glacier. <laughs> yeah. I also got the sense as I was working that these, I was like, it doesn't feel like I'm in this time. It feels like either these are from a past time or a future time. I couldn't tell, but it didn't feel like I was painting now, this landscape now. So that fall, 30 paintings or so later, I had this dream. And in the dream, I was way high up in the air and I was looking down on a coastline. I dream a lot. I'm a very active dreamer, but I'd never had what I would call a lucid dream where my voice really came into it. But this time my voice came into it and I said, what is this? And this voice came back to me and said, this is what you've been painting. I was like, what? What?" So then I asked another question. I said, well, where is this? And this voice said the Amalfi Coast. And I had never heard of the Amalfi Coast. So I woke the next morning I got up I was thinking about where do these landscapes look like they come from? And I was like, maybe coastal Africa, maybe, I didn't know. And I asked my wife, I said, have you ever heard of the Amalfi Coast? And she said, yeah, oh yeah, I think it's in Italy. I was like, okay. So I looked up the Amalfi Coast and I did an image search and I found this landscape that I'd been painting very specifically. So there's like a cliff on the right and this more sloped landscape on the left. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I didn't even know words for that. So I was like, I think we have to go to this place. So a search place and I found an Airbnb that had that view from the little balcony. And we booked this place and we went, at the time we had friends in Rome. So we visited some friends in Rome. And then we made this journey to where the specific view is, is actually the edge of Capri, the island of Capri, which in this country we call Capri. So like Capri pants, but they call it Capri there. The cliff is Capri and the sloped area is the mainland of Italy. And it's very, very specific. And so from Rome, we took a train to Naples and from Naples, then you take a ferry out to Capri. And as we're taking the ferry towards the island, the landscape just revealed itself. And I was like, oh my gosh, not only is it this area, but it is from a boat as you arrive into Capri. It was so incredible, just amazing. So we spent a few days there. It was, I don't even know what to say. And, you know, this voice that I heard, I had a few other conversations with this voice and I was nervous about going to Capri because I was like, uh-oh, maybe this is one of those forces are bringing you to the end of your life. Or I was like, maybe something horrible. Maybe this is like my death is going to happen there. I was so nervous. And I said, what's it going to be like? And it said, oh, it's just going to be like you're in your paintings. There's nothing to worry about. And that's what it was like. And it was amazing to have this witnessed by my wife too, because that's what she felt too. We would go around a corner and we'd be just be like, oh my gosh, these are the colors. These are the shapes. And I'd even started doing printmaking of this same landscape too. And I'd started working with this thing in printmaking called a faded roll, where you work with colors that are shifting into other colors. So I'd been using them to create the sense of sunrise and sunset. So you can go from like yellow to orange to green to blue. You can find this like beautiful transition of color. So I'd done a series of prints of this landscape that had the faded roll. And one night we were on the other end of the island looking out at the ocean and we had gotten lost. So we were there much later than we planned on being and the sun starts setting. And sure enough, it was exactly the colors and the shapes. The other amazing thing about this, that a lot of the paintings, there are these lines 
that I felt like I needed to have in the water, these kind of like curves and shapes. And I didn't know, I was like, I don't know why I'm making these, but I need to make these. And one day we're sitting out in the balcony at this little place in Capri, looking at the water, I'm looking at the cliff and I'm watching all the boats come and go. There are a lot of ferries that come out and we were right by the marina. And I realized those are the lines. They're the trails of boats. They're the wake that the boats leave. They're these beautiful lines that emerge and disappear and cross and interplay. Like the story of the humans interacting with the landscape. Absolutely. By water. That's just incredible. And it's incredible in terms of its message about the subconscious giving you something, right? Absolutely. And trusting too. For me, it really was a lot about Although I have to say it was very insistent at first. It was like, paint me. You need to paint me. I was like, okay. <laughs> and also they were gratifying. The other thing about those paintings, so it is a series that I've pretty much done every once in a while. I'll do another little one. Like I just did a little one the other day, but it feels as though it's kind of gone through its cycle. But the other thing that was amazing is people really responded strongly to that body of work. I hardly have any of it left. Almost all of those pieces sold. And I don't know why, but I think there's something in that because there's something bigger in them. There's something that maybe people instinctively relate to. When you were posting them regularly to Instagram, that was when I really noticed that you were doing visual art because I started seeing them regularly. And I was having that response. I was like, wow, these are so cool. And I loved how they were variations on a theme. It brought up for me something that I share with my classes a lot, this Kafka quote where he says, don't bend, don't water it down, don't try to make it logical, don't edit your own soul according to the fashion, but follow your most intense obsessions mercilessly. Oh, that's beautiful. That's perfect. And that is what it was. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I was feeling that in it. I was like, wow, she's just going with this thing that is grabbing her. And I really admired that about it. As an artist, then it's nice because when you have that, you know, think about Cezanne. I don't know how much you know about Cezanne, but Mont Saint-Victoire was his muse. He lived and he saw this mountain in his view every day from his home and from his studio. And he just painted it over and over and over and over. And as an artist, it can become your touchstone. You don't have to worry, oh, what am I going to do today? You go in and you just connect with your muse or with that, whatever that thing is. It took a lot of pressure off of painting because I never had to worry about, oh, what am I going to do? I knew what I was going to do. It was a matter of how am I going to do it? That's very cool. And you gave yourself the permission. I find in my writing workshops, people will sometimes apologize. Like, I'm sorry, I'm writing about this again. Right. And I'll say, no, you know, you're composting that for as long as it needs to be composted. Every time you turn it over, you unearth something new and it gets Absolutely. Absolutely. It won't get stale. And if it gets stale, I think you'll know it. You'll be like, huh, I think I'm done with that. And then it might bubble up again later. But these are our friends. Those are gifts. Most people would love to have something like that. So if you're lucky enough to have something like that, to have an obsession or to have a recurring theme, just be grateful. Because the rest of the time we're swimming around trying to figure out what the heck we're doing. If you have a rock, hold it, you know, hold it, love it. Yeah, I also have that metaphor that we're miners chipping away. And sometimes you hit a vein of gold and then just like follow the gold. Otherwise, you might have plenty of days where you just have a pile of rocks and that's okay too. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I'd have days where you have a pile of rocks. Absolutely. 
Well, speaking of piles of rocks, I know you've been working with natural pigments um, yeah. last year or maybe two years. Yeah, maybe about three years. That is another obsession. I'm really curious about how that came into being. When we moved to the house, I live in a very rural town that's called Colerain in Massachusetts. And growing up in, and it's actually not too far from where I grew up. Growing up in Vermont, I've kind of, I've been making my way slowly back to living in a more rural setting over the years. And actually the dance injury has allowed me to do that. It's harder. It's not impossible. There are lots of people who dance in rural areas, but as a dancer, I really wanted more of a community and like regular classes and companies and all of that. And it's harder to find that in rural areas. So with my dance, not making that demand on me, I was suddenly free to live where I wanted to live and have slowly found my way back. So we live in this beautiful area. And when we moved into this place, I was painting in oils and there was only one sink in the house that was appropriate for cleaning my brushes. So when I moved into my home studio before, like you said, I had been sharing a studio with my wife that was away from home. When I really started working at home, I was like, I can't clean toxic materials in my kitchen. It just feels wrong. So I started investigating what I could do and had a lot of failure. I really just like made a lot of ugly, messy stuff. And I loved it. It was fun. But I was grinding beets and drying them on the top of the stove. And I was trying to, early on, I was trying to make paints from plant-based things, which now that I know, I've learned so much over the years, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. So basically botanical materials, plant-based materials make really beautiful inks, but not so much paints because they're water-based and pigments, which are things that are like from the ground, like dirt and rocks and minerals make beautiful paints. So I had to figure that out. That took quite a while. And now I work with all of it. How did you know where to start with that? Did you go to resources on the internet or did you literally just walk outside and like, Hmm, these are cool colors. I did literally just walk outside and say, oh, these are cool colors. And like I said, I, I experimented for, I would say, almost two years without having much success at all. It became like a little side project. And then maybe two years into it, I was introduced to a book called Make Ink by Jason Logan, which is an incredible resource. So a lot of the information about working with natural materials is in the textile world, textile and fabrics. Those artists, you know, weavers and tailors have been working with natural materials throughout. Like they never lost that legacy. And painters, at least a lot of white Western painters, settlers, we lost that link to natural materials. So we started working with very commercial materials. And Jason Logan was one of the first people I knew who was doing work with natural materials on paper and not on fabric. So I kept trying to adapt things from that were designed for fabric and work on them with paper. And they're quite different. Um, So he was the first one to help me have a lot of success. So that happened. And then I also got a challenge from this printmaking community that I'm part of to think about the materials that you use and try to use materials that are not extracted from the planet. So not harmfully extracted. And that really wipes out a lot of color for artists because most of the things that we get color from are from mined materials, most of them. And they can be pretty toxic and pretty damaging to the planet. So I was like, oh, this is the perfect opportunity to try out these things that I've been working with and not having success with. And I pulled out all these things. I'd put them in my closet by then because I was so frustrated. 
I pulled them all out and I started trying to print with them instead of paint with them. And they worked. I was like, oh my gosh, these are great for printing. So those two things, that book, Make Ink, and then starting to print with them started giving me success. And then I was, that was my new obsession. Then I got totally involved in that. Right now, that's mostly what I do. My studio now, I pulled out all of my commercial materials. I tried to reintroduce them recently and they went back in the closet. I have a mini fridge that's full of handmade inks that I make from flowers and nuts and berries and a freezer that's full of berries that I harvested to use over the winter. I have drawers full of dried flowers and also like nut hulls and acorn caps and all sorts of things. And then lots and lots of pigments too. Like some of them even just rocks that I'll grind down later. And then more of them have already been ground and are waiting to be mixed into paint. Wow. That's cool. Does it change the nature of what you're making images of that you're working with inks rather than paints and with how? Absolutely. It changes the images quite a lot. The inks are very loose and very fluid. So it's harder to have control over ink. It really wants to do its own thing. And I talk a bit when I teach about having patience and flexibility with the materials because they really, they are living creatures quite frankly, especially the botanical inks, they're made from the same things that we are made from. They are our family. So I'm collaborating now with the things that are alive in my studio and they're changing just like I'm changing and they're dying just like I'm dying and they're living just like I'm living. So they're going to speak really strongly. It's not like having a commercial paint that I'm going to boss around and I'm going to tell it exactly what I want it to do. These things are going to boss me around a little bit too. And they're going to say, well, you know, I don't really like that paper. I don't like that shape. So it's very much a collaboration. I don't know how else to explain it. The inks, I work much more quickly and fluidly with. I make these samples that are like a circular form and I drop ink into it and let the inks kind of move around as they want to. It looks Um, like a planet kind of. Yeah, they do. They look like planets or even sometimes like you're looking through a microscope, like they have this macro micro look to them. Mm -hmm. So they're going to speak very loudly, those materials. And then the pigments or like the earth and mineral, those ground things that I work with are much more slow. And if you think about it, those are materials that have been changing and have been part of this planet for millions of years. I'm related to them but I'm working at a much faster pace. My lifespan is like a blip compared to some of these rocks. Some of the pigments I have are millions of years old and they will absolutely outlast me hundred percent. Whereas the inks are moving a little faster than I am. They're from plants. So most of them will change color and well, it depends. I could die tomorrow, but if I live a little longer, you know, another at least like 10 or 20 years, many of the inks will have faded and changed quite a bit in that time. So it also makes me very cognizant of the pace. And because of that, I tend to paint very fluidly and more abstractly with the inks. And then the pigments, I'm painting land masses again. I'm painting ground or planets. Like I did a whole series of planets with them that they just want to be solid. They want to be these solid things. And the inks are like, woohoo, they're like playful and dancerly. That's cool. So they yeah. really have their individual natures. They do. They're my buddies. 
And you started making books recently, right? Yeah, I started making books. That was something I think I started maybe last winter. And that has been fascinating too, because I feel like that taps into my choreographer brain a bit. It's so structured and so measured. And then it also takes these two-dimensional forms and kind of moves them into three-dimensional structures, which is fun. Plus books. I love books. I've always loved books. So to make books is really gratifying. And you've done little videos. So in a way they are dancing because they're opening up and revealing different parts. of Absolutely. A lot of times they look like stages to me. They remind me of like stage sets. They're like these little arenas. And then with some of the books, I I don't know if you saw that, but I started writing in some of them and I started writing again, which I haven't for ages. Then that has been really exciting too, to bring the written word back in. As a performer, I used to write I would sing and dance at the same time and wrote all of the material that I performed. I wrote it myself. And that was something that I kind of missed from from my dance process. So the fact that writing just kind of came back into it is really, that's pretty sweet. That's beautiful. Well, I'm so excited to keep following your journey and see what comes next. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure. It's fun talking about Art is always fun for me. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you so much for listening to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Join me next time when I'll be speaking with Deborah Gibson, creator of Dear Michelle Obama, the podcast, a.k.a. Dear Michelle. Until then, take good care and stay off leash.